God, we, we need to see Jesus this morning. Lord, in Daniel 4, we pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and discernment to understand this text, Lord, what it means, and Lord, what it means for us today. Lord, the challenge of understanding your word is that the sin in our lives can, can block our vision. And so, Lord, I pray, as, as Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, that you would open our spiritual eyes, that you would enlighten them, Lord, that we might understand your word and we might do what it says. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In chemistry, a litmus test is used to determine whether or not a particular kind of solution is acidic uh, or basic. Now, I know when I say that, I'm, I'm on kind of thin ice right now, but try to, try to remember going back into maybe your high school days of being in a science class and maybe conducting some of those experiments. It kind of gives me anxiety just thinking about it. But uh, when, you, when you have like a litmus test, you take, and there are different ways of doing this, you take litmus paper and you can dip it into a particular kind of solution. And if that litmus paper, which was maybe red, if it turns blue, then it shows you that it's basic. If you had blue litmus paper and it turns red, then it's acidic. Well, the term litmus test can take on different meanings today, that people use that term uh, to talk about making an evaluation or making a judgment about whether or not something or someone is acceptable. So the litmus test, the way that we kind of use it in everyday life, is the single most important deciding factor. You might use that phrase when you're um, shopping for a new car, and the litmus test could be gas mileage, right? Or maybe you're picking out a new pair of shoes to wear. The the litmus test could be uh, how comfortable they are or, or how they make you look. We understand litmus test as the issue that determines whether or not something is right true, or acceptable. Now, I share that with you this morning because Daniel 4 actually provides a spiritual litmus test that what I think we have before us through this case study of King Nebuchadnezzar's life is a litmus test that clearly defines the difference between someone who just kind of believes in the existence of God compared to someone whose whole life is surrender to God. That this spiritual litmus test that we're going to see here in Daniel 4 is going to show us the difference between someone who is a fan of God compared to someone who actually follows God. And this is centered on Nebuchadnezzar, but I think this test is applied to each and every one of us. And the litmus test really comes down to this. What do you do with your pride? What do you do with your pride? Everyone takes this litmus test because each and every one of our hearts has been dipped in the sinful solution of pride. Let's jump in in Daniel 4, and we notice immediately in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar is making a declaration to all the people from every nation and tongue. You can almost envision this is a massive press conference of sorts, And because he's the most important person in the world, people are listening. But what he declares is very surprising. In verse 2, he says, It has seemed good to me to show. And what we know about King Nebuchadnezzar, we would maybe expect him to say that it has seemed good to me to show my great statues or my enormous palace or my great architecture. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't draw attention to himself 
he draws attention to God, to Yahweh, to Daniel's God. And he talks about the most high God has shown him signs and wonders. And he says, I I have to tell you about them. He talks about God's kingdom being an everlasting kingdom. Now, in the beginning here, it seems as though that King Nebuchadnezzar has passed this spiritual litmus test. But one thing you need to know is that these first three verses is actually the end of the story. That chapter four is really King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. And it's bookended with Nebuchadnezzar giving praise and glory to God. But the way it's written is it's meant to draw us in to the story. It's meant, it's meant for us to ask the question, how can a pagan king all of a sudden start to declare praise to God? This is a very different response that King Nebuchadnezzar demonstrates for us than what we've been used to. Like chapters 2 and 3, Nebuchadnezzar would maybe give credit to God or acknowledge God. But the the way that King Nebuchadnezzar talks about God in the beginning and the end of this chapter is demonstrating one who has come to a place in his life where he has surrendered to Yahweh. And chapter 4 explains how he came to that conclusion. So let's jump in here. Let's see what what the Lord did in his life. The first thing I want to point out is that God exposes King Nebuchadnezzar's pride. In verse 4, we immediately notice that King Nebuchadnezzar is in a state of mind that really has not been the norm in these first three chapters. We have seen Nebuchadnezzar uh, irrational, fearful, uh, angry. He's been paranoid. But here, he's at ease. He's comfortable. He's flourishing, in fact. Uh, Scholars believe that about 30 years have passed since the episode of the fiery furnace. So this is now at the end of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Daniel is about 50 years old at this point in time, and Babylon has never been more dominant. There is peace and prosperity throughout the kingdom, but all that changes. And for us as a reader, it changes quite suddenly. In verse 5, we notice that Nebuchadnezzar is having sleep problems again. This reminds us of chapter 2. He's greatly alarmed about these visions and dreams that he's been having. So what does he do? Well, he does exactly what he did in chapter 2. He gathers his astrologers and the wise men and and some of the magicians, and he asks them to interpret the dream. Well, they are of no help, (laughs) no surprise there. And so that leads uh, into Daniel entering the scene, the trusted, reliable man of God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar knows that there is something different about Daniel. Verse 9, he recognizes that God lives in Daniel, empowers Daniel. And so he tells Daniel the dream. But this dream is different than chapter 2. Chapter 2 is pretty simple. This dream is more complex. What we have here is an enormous tree that's in the middle of the earth, and it was so tall that it reached the heavens, And it was so big that everybody throughout the whole earth could see it. Now, a tree was a common symbol of life and well-being in the ancient Near East. And because it was centrally located, it symbolized the position of supreme importance compared to everything else in the earth. This tree was beautiful. It's filled with leaves and and fruit. It was able to, to produce food for the animals and shade for the animals. And so, so far in this dream, things are going well for King Nebuchadnezzar. He's encouraged at this dream, but then things change. 
Uh, the, the dream here, we, we learn about a messenger or an angel who comes down from heaven and loudly proclaims for this tree to be chopped down. So the fruit, the leaves are gone. The animals flee. Now, the second half of verse 15 and 16, this is when it gets a little bit weird. All right, the, the description changes from a tree to what the tree symbolized, which was a man. Look at it with me. Second half of verse 15, it says, Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over. Now, that's what, what would have done it for me if I'm King Nebuchadnezzar. I'd be like, okay, what is going on here? This would have been extremely weird, alarming, and what is happening here, and, and we're going to discover more about this because Daniel's going to interpret it in just a few verses later, the tree represented Nebuchadnezzar, and through his influence, he greatly impacted the whole earth. But here's the problem. The problem is, is that he thought his influence and all the things that he did was because of himself, that he deserved the praise and the glory. That's why the angel comes and says, this needs to be chopped down. Look at verse 17 with me. It tells us the purpose and the reason for this. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end or for the purpose of that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it to the lowliest of men. Because that's the purpose. That's why these things are about to happen in Nebuchadnezzar's life. The, the intended goal of this dream was to expose the deadly pride within Nebuchadnezzar's heart, okay? Because he didn't see it. He didn't know it was there. That's why God sends this vision. That's why God sends this dream in order for him to become aware of the pride that was in his life. So these things are going to happen for King Nebuchadnezzar to realize that God is the center of the universe and not him, that God rules over the kingdoms and he gives it to whomever he will. But the problem is King Nebuchadnezzar cannot see his own pride even in this dream, that he's so intoxicated with himself, he's so filled and blinded by such deadly pride that he's unaware of the issue at hand. And so Daniel has to come and, and connect the dots for him. And in so doing, in verses 19 through 27, God uh, takes it a step further, not only tries to expose the pride, but now he warns King Nebuchadnezzar of his pride through Daniel. See, nothing has happened yet. Like, like Nebuchadnezzar can still repent, can still confess his pride, and none of these things would happen. But he doesn't. Like Daniel's trying to warn him of these things. And, and so Nebuchadnezzar wants to know the meaning of this dream. Daniel knows it, but he's very hesitant to tell the king what the dream actually means. And don't look that over. Like Daniel is is showing compassion towards the king here. Like Daniel, who's been with King Nebuchadnezzar for decades, could have used this as an opportunity to taunt him. He could have said, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, it's your turn to pay. You destroyed my hometown. You desecrated God's temple. You threw my three best friends into the fiery furnace. Now it's your turn to pay. But he doesn't do that. 
He is tender-hearted toward the king. He even tells them, King, I wish this dream was for your enemies. Like Daniel's actually putting on display what it looks like to be compassionate and yet still hold to your convictions. Like church, we can do both. You don't have to pick one. You can be right and loving at the same time. And that's what Daniel is doing here. Now in dreadful irony, it's Nebuchadnezzar who's trying to comfort Daniel here. Did you pick up on that? He tells Daniel, don't worry, it's gonna be okay. But here's the thing. Daniel has every right to be alarmed here. Like the problem is, Nebuchadnezzar is not worried enough. Nebuchadnezzar seems as though he's so desensitized towards the gravity of his own pride and his spiritual condition that he's not alarmed enough. And so in verses 20 through 26, Daniel explains the dream. He says, you, O king, you are the tree. Basically, he's telling him, you have been great, you have been strong, you have been influential, but because you thought it was about you, your kingdom will be chopped down. You will become like a beast of the field for seven periods of time, most likely meaning seven whole years. Now imagine what's going on here. He's looking the king dead in the eyes, and he's saying, you're going to be driven away from man, driven away from the comforts of your kingdom, driven away from the power of your throne, and you will be like a beast of the field. No longer eating the king's food, you're going to be eating the grass like an ox. That's bold. Like that's courage to be able to tell the most powerful man in the world those things. But this is kind of crazy. <laughs> like what, what in the world is happening here? The text literally says that his mind will be changed from that of a man to that of an animal. Like he'll actually believe himself to be an animal for seven whole years. Now, some believe that what will happen to King Nebuchadnezzar was a psychological disorder, disorder known as lycanthropy, a delusion which one believes himself or herself to be a creature, an animal, like a bird or a tiger, a cat of some sort, right? And it's unusual, but still happens today in 2022. And we don't know for sure that could be what's happening, or it could just be that God made him like this. But this is to last until he recognizes that God reigns and not him. This is to last until he deals with his pride and repents. In fact, verse 27, Daniel goes a step further and exhorts the king to repent. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He tells him, look, here's the solution, King Nebuchadnezzar. Humble yourself. Acknowledge your pride. Do what is right by showing mercy to the poor and the oppressed, which is a distinguishing feature of one who is humble. Now, I want to stop there. We'll, we're going to pick up the rest of the story in the next sermon to see what happens. But just a spoiler alert here, King Nebuchadnezzar does not repent. Everything that he dreams actually comes true. He even takes what Daniel says to him, ignores it for 12 months, and continues to live in pride. It seems as though he has failed this spiritual litmus test. 
And I know maybe what you're thinking, because this is what I thought when I was reading the text, you know, this week. I was thinking to myself, what a fool. Like, how foolish can you be? You literally have God speaking to you through a dream. You have Daniel, the prophet, interpreting the dream, and yet you still do not repent? And it made me wonder, like, what is going on here? Like, how can someone be so blind? Well, what is happening here? is what I would call the destructive trap of pride. That this is exactly what pride does. Pride traps us, and it's almost impossible to escape from it. And this is the spiritual litmus test. Remember, the, the spiritual litmus test here determines whether or not you are living surrendered to God or not. And as we move into application here this morning... I really want to challenge you. I've been praying for you, praying for myself, that you would resist the temptation to say the following, that you'll be tempted here to say, you know, I don't really struggle all that much with pride. Like pride is for those who are successful. Pride is for those who are significant, who do good things. That's not me. So I don't really struggle all that much with pride. Or to say, oh, yes, great, a sermon on pride. I'm so glad so-and-so is here to listen to this, right? Both responses is actually evidence of pride. See, this is what I want you to see this morning, that the spiritual litmus test here, whether or not you are surrendered to God, comes down to what do you do with your pride? See, the question is not, do I have pride or not? The question is, where is it in my life, and how much of it do I have? We all have pride. Pride is the source of every sin that we commit. I'm going to make that argument in a moment. And because we're all sinners, we all struggle with pride. And so the question I want us to wrestle with today, and then the next sermon as we look at the rest of Daniel 4, is what do we do with it? Like we have a case study here of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's really helpful for us, but how do we deal with our pride? Well, today, the first step that I want to challenge us with in dealing with our pride, the first step is actually seeing it, seeing your pride. That sounds basic, but some of us aren't actually aware of the pride that's in our lives. And some of that is because of the nature of pride. It hides itself, but other parts of it is because we actually don't fully understand what pride is. And so before we get into the specifics here of how I'm going to unpack this, I want to just zoom out for a moment and try to define pride for us, just so that we're on the same page. Here's maybe a helpful definition of pride. Pride is an apparent or subtle, okay, it can be obvious or kind of sneaky, self-absorption focused on self-exaltation and self-recognition driven with a desire to control and use all things for the advancement of self. What's the key word there? Self. That's exactly right. Pride, when you boil it down, is a preoccupation with the self. Now, another thing I want to say before we jump into the specifics, sometimes what we do with sin is we have a tendency to kind of put sin into two different categories, We've got one category where we might say, these are culturally acceptable sins, right? These are sins that you can probably confess to other people and it's okay. But then there's another category of sins 
where we say, yeah, these are not acceptable. We're going to kind of keep these to ourselves, right? We're going to kind of hide these because if I confess them, then man, that's really going to damage my reputation. Something that we do from time to time is we actually put pride in the culturally acceptable category. Now, I don't think we should put sin in either of those categories, but that's a tendency that we have to do. So what I want to challenge us with this morning is to understand the gravity of pride. I want you to understand today that God hates pride. God hates it, despises it. In fact, Proverbs chapter 6 says this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Did you notice that list? Of all the things that God hates, of all the things that's an abomination to God, what's the first thing on that list? Haughty eyes. Now, haughty eyes isn't referring to how your eyes look. (laughs) It's referring to being prideful, being arrogant. Haughty eyes looks down on other people. Haughty eyes means you've got a puffed up view, an inflated view of oneself. And this is something that God hates. This is a very, very serious issue. Now, I think that's helpful to kind of define it to to put some gravity around it, but it still doesn't answer the question, why is pride a destructive trap? Okay, so what I want to do is is provide four reasons why pride is a destructive trap and things that we even see in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Here's the first reason. Pride employs various manifestations. Uh, Pride kind of masks itself in different ways like no other sin. Like murder is always murder. Stealing is always stealing. But pride is much more sneaky than that. Let me give you a couple of examples of ways that it it manifests itself. Um, Here's one, self-exaltation. Okay, this is probably the most obvious way pride manifests itself. This is where we see it in King Nebuchadnezzar's life. But pride loves the spotlight, loves praise, loves being affirmed. And it wants to be exalted. It wants to be great. Now, we know that's wrong. Like, that's basic. We know that God is the only one who should be exalted. So why do we do it? Why do we fall into that trap of wanting the spotlight and wanting the glory? Well, I think it's because, in part, it's a way that we deal with our emptiness. It's a way that we deal with, with that void, that, that sense of insignificance, I think this is why, in part, the the self-esteem movement has become so popular as of late, where everybody is this special, unique snowflake, right? The the self-esteem movement believes that we can solve basically all of our problems if you have high self-esteem. And yet Ed Welch says that the massive interest in self-esteem and self-worth exists because it's trying to help us with a real problem. The problem is that we are really not okay. And there's really no reason why we should feel great about ourselves. We truly are deficient. The meager props of the self-esteem teaching will eventually collapse as people realize that their problem is much deeper. The problem is, in part, 
our nakedness before God. And yet what pride does is it tries to fill that void by exalting ourselves even before God. Okay, so that's one way it manifests itself. Let me give you a second example. This is less obvious, is self-pity. Okay, someone who is prideful, again, wants to be in the spotlight, wants attention, but not just because of their achievements, but they can also want to be in the spotlight because of their weaknesses, because of their inadequacies, because of their hurts, because of their pain, that they want attention, they want focus. They may even carry intentionally this, I'm not good enough mentality. And they do that because they want to be affirmed by others. They want to to be coddled. They want people to pay attention to them. And many times they, they they can even be intentionally withdrawn from relationships, intentionally distant. And this can be because of their pride, because they want people to focus in on them. And so if self-exaltation is one side of the coin of pride, self-pity is the other. So be aware of of both. The third example I'll give, and we'll move on here, another manifestation is becoming um, self-defensive. Self-defensive, where you're never in the wrong. You hardly ever apologize. You hardly ever accept fault. You're really, really skilled at blame-shifting. Right? And part of the reason for this is because pride wants to protect and defend the self no matter what. So you become very defensive. And I think at the root of, of each of these, pride creates a distorted view of oneself. That instead of applying Romans chapter 12, verse 3, which Paul says to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith God has signed, God, that God has assigned, the prideful person either thinks of themselves way too highly or way too lowly or just thinks about themselves way too much at all. And so pride, I think, is a destructive trap because of the way it manifests, manifests itself in so many different ways. So that's the first reason. Here's the second reason, though, is that the proud are opposed by God. Let me unpack why this is destructive, but James 4, 6 clearly says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Notice what James doesn't say there. He doesn't say that God simply ignores the proud, or God keeps distance from them, or God avoids them. No, he says God resists them, stands in opposition to them. Now, why is that? Well, part of the reason is that when you are consumed by pride, you are actually just consumed with yourself. And when you're consumed with yourself, that means that you're not consumed with God. As C.S. Lewis says, that as long as you are proud, oh, excuse me, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Okay, so notice why this is a trap. Okay, God opposes the proud because the prideful in heart makes God small. It takes the infinite, 
eternally existent, all-sovereign God, and shrinks him inside his own heart. And it's not because they've got bad, bad theology all the time. They can actually have a very orthodox view of God. But what a prideful person tends to do is it takes all that they know about God up here and downsizes God's glory in here. It domesticates how they view God. They, they tame God. They, they take all that God is and they try to squeeze them into this tiny box inside their hearts so that they can, can, can continue to rule and reign their lives and not submit to who, who the true king actually is. That's why God opposes them. God opposes the proud because, man, deep down, a prideful person is unconvinced that they actually need God. Like a, a proud person rarely prays. A, a proud person, they may want grace, but they're not convinced they actually need grace. Like a proud person, they're driving their own life. They're going wherever they want to go. They may have God riding shotgun, but he's just there, you know, for, for some advice every once in a while. But they are calling the shots. See, this is a, distract, a destructive trap because they're turning a blind eye. They're, they're causing the one who can help them to actually now oppose them. They're turning away from the only solution to the disease of their sin. That's why it is a destructive trap. But not only that, it gets worse. That pride is the taproot for all other sin. So this is another reason. It actually is the source for all other sins. It doesn't just display itself in different ways, but it actually fuels other sin. The Bible teaches that pride is the precursor to all other sins. That Proverbs 16, verses 18 and 19 says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So first comes pride and then destruction upon that person's life. First comes pride, then the various offspring of sin. Jonathan Edwards talks about it this way. He says that there is no sin so much like the devil as this for secrecy and subtlety and appearing in great many shapes that are undetected and unsuspected, and even appearing as an angel of light. It takes occasion to arise from everything. It perverts and abuses everything and encompass the heart like the coats of an onion. If you pull off one, there is another underneath. Heard one Puritan preacher talk about pride this way, that it is a big-bellied sin, that most of the sins that are in the world are the offspring and issue of pride. Let me connect the dots for us for a moment. Okay, some of us are like, okay, like I'm kind of tracking with you, but let me give you 10 specific sins that I think pride actually fuels. Okay, number one is covetousness, because you believe you deserve something more than others. So covetousness is born. Number two is boasting. Because everyone should know who you are and what you have accomplished is pride. Contention with others, because in picking fights, you feel a sense of superiority over those who may be an heir. 
Or how about a, a lack of thankfulness? Because after all, you deserve everything that you get. Five, selfishness, because you are at the center of the universe. Self-deceit, because it's easier to believe you are something when in fact you're not. How about a judgmental attitude, because you believe the errors of others are more serious than your own? Or gossip, because you look so much better when telling others how awful someone else is? Or complaining, because God, after all, should have consulted you before orchestrating the events of your day or your life? Or hypocrisy, because, you hide, because when you hide the truth in your own failures, you actually avoid shame. Look, pride is a destructive trap because it is the soil in which all manner of sin germinates and grows. It's very destructive. So we've seen pride as being this destructive trap because it manifests itself in various forms. It causes God to oppose us. It's the taproot for all other sin, but there's one more that I think is the most dangerous. Here's the fourth one, is that pride blinds the heart from what it actually needs to see the most. I think perhaps the most sobering summary of pride is found in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12. It says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Now, why is there little hope for him? Well, it's because pride puts a person beyond the perceived need for instruction. Like a prideful person is resistant to rebuke. It's insensitive toward conviction. So why is there little hope for them? Because they're blind to their own condition. They don't see their sin. They don't see their need for instruction, their need for grace, that they're blind. And look, there's, there's not a more dangerous place to be spiritually than that. There's not a more dangerous place to be spiritually than when you think that you're okay spiritually when you're actually not. And so as destructive as pride is, it's equally as difficult to actually spot in your life because pride like masks itself, it hides itself deep within our hearts and convinces us that it's not actually there. It's in other people's lives, of course. It's not in your life. You're not like that. And so it convinces of, the, of these lies and it's hard to actually see. And so because of that, what I want to do is point out different symptoms of pride in our lives. Sometimes it's hard to go right at the source, but it's easier to identify, okay, I've got this symptom. Where is this coming from? And I think you can connect these to actually pride. So what I'm going to do is I've categorized these in three different columns. Like you've got the internal symptoms in your heart, and then the second column there is relational, how it shows up in your relationships with other people. And then that third one is actually between you and the Lord, like how you see how you understand God. So let me go through the first one there, in your own heart. Symptom of pride, very basically, is when you have an inflated view of your own importance or abilities. Okay, second one there is when you are consistently judging others in your heart. Thirdly, when you think that you could never fall into a particular kind of sin. 
or the next one there, self-pity because of the gifts and abilities that you lack. Kind of have a woe is me mentality. Another one there is just being impatient. The next one is a lack of contentment because you think you deserve more. And then the last one there is being consumed with what others think of you is actually a, a, a symptom of pride. But then moving to that second column, the, the relational uh, aspect of this is when you rarely ask for forgiveness from others. The second one, when you think that you can always do it better than other people. Third one there is when you talk too much about yourself, hijack the conversation, put it back on you. Right? Another one is when you become devastated when you get criticism or feedback or being unteachable or becoming overly defensive or maximizing other sins but minimizing your own. Or then the third one, this is towards God, you just have a lack of gratitude. You haven't said thank you, God, for A, B, and C in a while. Or you complain about God, the way that God has done A, B, or C. Lack of consistent prayer. You rarely think about God outside of church. Or, or you believe that God owes you a certain kind of life. Or that you presume upon God's grace. You take it for granted. Or when there's a lack of trust in God when you go through trials. Those are all symptoms of of pride. It got to help us identify where it is in our lives because, again, it wants to convince us that it's not there. And so, kind of a hard question here, but how did you do with that list there? Do you have any of those symptoms? Man, if you're like me, you've got more than one. You have more than two. Like, a lot of those things can characterize our lives. And for King Nebuchadnezzar, his whole life was drenched with pride. And he couldn't see it. He goes another 12 months without listening and, and hearing this warning and his pride being exposed. And he continues to live in it and goes through all of those things that, that Daniel said that he would. But the question for us this morning is, what about you? Like, what about you and your pride? Do you see it in your life? Do you see it in your heart? Do you see that the way that it's manifesting itself? Because the question, uh, uh, the litmus test to determine if you're surrendered to God is, what are you actually doing with your pride? Not, do you have it? Of course you have it. But what are you doing with it? And I wonder if the first step, if you can actually see it. Well, if you can see it, maybe you're on the other side of the, of, of the challenge. And maybe right now you're feeling overwhelmed. And, and you just feel the weight of your sin. Man, I, I felt that as I was prepping for this, making this list, like, oh man, this is gonna hurt. Oh, you know, like, because pride, it can manifest itself in so many ways. And so maybe your issue right now is not the fact that you're blind to it, but that you feel weary. You feel just burdened because you have all of these symptoms. Can I encourage you this morning? That's actually a good thing. Like that is actually evidence that God is at work in your life. Like one of the things I want you to understand this morning is that when God reveals sin in your life, that's an act of God's mercy and not judgment. Like part of God's judgment upon our lives is when he allows a, a calloused heart to continue to sin and live in darkness and not bring them to repentance. So it's actually an act of God's kindness and mercy and grace when he's 
taking your sin and drawing it out of the darkness and into the light so that you can actually deal with it, confess it, and repent of it. So if you're feeling the weight of it right now, that's the Lord, that's the Spirit moving in you, giving you eyes to see what you could not see apart from his work. And even here with King Nebuchadnezzar, he was trying to show him kindness by exposing his own pride. And so as we close this morning, I I want us just to take a couple of moments to not only see it, but now to confess it before the Lord. That 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why can God forgive you? Why can God cleanse you from your sin and your pride? Because there is someone who has already dealt with it in full, and his name is Jesus. 2,000 years ago, got up on a cross, paid for your penalty, all of your pride, all of the ways that, that pride demonstrates itself in your life, all of your disobedience, Jesus paid for it in full, that he dealt with it. So now you can be forgiven. Now you can be cleansed. And for the next sermon, you can actually walk in humility before that God. And so right now, I just want us to take just a couple moments to deal with our pride by applying Jesus's work on the cross to this area of your life. Look, we already have a propitiation for our sin. We already have someone who's paid for it. Let's apply it into our lives, ask God for forgiveness, and walk in newness of life. So I'll give you just a couple of moments to do that, and then I'll close this this morning. God, we thank you for your kindness, but that you work in our lives in such a way that that we can actually see our sinfulness. Lord, we thank you for that supernatural work in our lives because well, the power of sin blinds us to it. So God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you've given us spiritual eyes to see it. Thank you that we can confess it before you and that there's grace, that your mercy is truly more. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be a people who are continual repenters before you. God, make us more and more aware of our sin. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that he has dealt with our consequences in full. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to walk in newness of life as we are your people. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.